Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Listen, we have a reopening com economy here in the United States, and we're seeing it in lots of different areas of the economy. One area that I think is going to be a real challenge, however, is commercial real estate. And I just speak about here what I'm seeing here in New York City. Here we are on Lexington Avenue between 58th and 59th Street at Bloomberg and all of the retail space with the exception of one tiny little Swiss chocolate uh, shop, all of it is vacant and all of it pre-pandemic was actually filled. So let's bring in Noah Miller, Vice President of Gelt Financial, a national real estate investment firm. Noah, I'd love to get your thoughts about, particularly in some of the larger urban areas that really have been hit with commercial vacancies. Give us a sense of where that market is right now and, and kind of what's the outlook. Sure, well, thanks so much for having me guys. I, I appreciate being here. Um, you, you know, the, the, the urban uh, retail market is very interesting right now, especially when you compare it to the suburban retail market. You know, a lot of people like to talk about the urban retail market and, and, and how there's a lot of vacancy and a lot of uncertainty. And it's, it's funny, it's, it's, it's a whole different world in the suburban market. In the suburban market, you're actually seeing small retail and strip centers do fairly well. Um, you know, a lot of these centers who have the experiential real estate, you know, the dog groomers, the coffee shop, the pizza place, the nail salons, they've stayed full during COVID. And we're actually seeing an increased appetite uh, from investors who, who demand that. Um, so it's funny, like I said, every time I tune it on, in, I hear retail's dead, but really they're just talking about urban. When you go to a suburban, I actually think that sector is going to be pretty good for the next couple of years. It's pretty amazing. You know, I'm back here in New York just visiting. I live in Berlin um, for the past five years. And obviously, I haven't been here for, for a while because of the, the lockdown. I couldn't travel. I walked down Lexington Avenue, and all of the stores are shut. Now, I expect that if I'm in, like, rural Ohio after a massive recession. But you don't expect that in when you're visiting the capital of the world, right? I mean, New York City is... Um, you know, is it. So how bad has this hit the urban areas? How bad has this hit the densely populated cities around the country and around the world? Well, well, they've been hit very hard, but, but that's because there was such a massive exodus. I mean, think about how many people left New York during COVID and came to Florida or to Texas, same with San Francisco. And that's why I'm saying, you know, when, when you look at just the urban cities, you're only looking at a piece of what happened. Um, for all the suburban areas where everyone flocked to, uh, th those are, are, are faring pretty well. And not just in, by the way, in retail, but on, also in office. I mean, you're seeing a lot of empty office buildings, high rises in Manhattan and San Francisco. But if you go to the suburban markets across the country in, in, in the office space, those are doing well. This, the small accounting firms, the small law firms who have 5, 10, 15 employees, you know, they're not set up to work from home. They, they need to be in the office. They need the interaction. And, and um, it, again, it really is a tale well, of two cities almost when comparing urban and suburban. So what's your focus? At Gelt Financial, what do you uh, specialize in there? What can people do with you? So what we do is we really specialize in providing debt and equity in the sub $5 million space. So there's a lot of owner-operators who are these smaller Main Street owner-operators, mom and pop, who have a really hard time putting together the capital stack. If you're an institution, it's easy. Everyone's throwing money at you, banks, uh, equity investors. But for the mom and pops, you know, those are the hustler investors, the American dream investors, and most people shy away from them. So we provide capital to those type of investors across the country. So 
what are we seeing in terms of investor appetite for real estate here? You know, I would think a lot of folks who have a higher risk profile be saying this is a once in a 100 year opportunity to get into real estate at lower prices. Are you seeing that, in fact, when you talk to your investors? We're seeing a big appetite for real estate, but I wouldn't say it's 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 really because it's a once in a hundred year uh, phenomenon. I mean, the truth is, real estate prices haven't dropped considerably since COVID started. Um, interest rates are still really low, so debt is available. So if debt's available and interest rates are low, people are going to buy real estate and pay a premium for it. Uh, I think what's happening is you're seeing the mom and pops get more involved, and those are the ones we're helping out, as well as you're seeing millennials get more involved and want to enter the real estate space, especially in ways that they couldn't do a couple of years ago. I think a couple of years ago, you needed a million dollars to invest in real estate or a couple hundred thousand. Today, we have a lot of investors who invest with us with as little as five or $10,000. It's, it's a good you know, point. It's a good point. They're investing in real properties, which they couldn't do a couple of years ago. So that's a growing space and a demand in the, in the, in the real estate world. It's not just the money, right? It's the admin, it's um, the search. And I was talking to... A friend of mine who actually is a concert promoter yesterday, but also has been investing in real estate. And it's, it's such a hassle if you have to do all that stuff yourself. So if you can find someone else to do it and you think it's a good asset class, um, then I guess it's not just money you're saving, but a lot of time and stress as well. What kind of growth are you expecting? We're expecting a lot of growth. We're, we're a second generation company. The, the company was actually started 30 years ago by my father. Uh, I've been involved for a couple of years now after leaving the institutional world. And, and our goal is to double uh, this year and then double again next year. And, and, and again, with the increased appetite from the younger generations, uh, as well as the mom and pops wanting to get involved, we, we see that happening. So, no, I'd love to get your thoughts on retail, um, you know, commercial real estate for the retail industry. We've seen, even prior to the pandemic, a lot of store closings, re, you know, the footprint of the Macy's of the world on a national basis declining. And, um, you know, as more and more people shop online, it seems like that whole process has really been accelerated by the pandemic. How do you view kind of commercial real estate for in, in the retail space? The retail is interesting. And again, it's really, it's, that's also two stories because you have clearly have the big department stores that are losing footprint. You know, a lot of um, individuals who weren't used to shopping on Amazon or Instacart prior to COVID are now doing it and they're probably going to stick around. So, you know, the question of malls is really still uncertain. A lot of these malls are going through, um, you know, changes where they're tearing some of them down. They're making them more kind of, you know, your experiences. So that I still think is a little bit unseen. I think, you know, some of the, the Simon malls will be okay just because they're spending so much money and really driving traffic. But a lot of the more local malls and, you know, the secondary markets, at the end of the day, I think they'll probably be torn down and made into almost warehouse space for the last mm. mile for companies like Amazon. But again, going back to these small strip centers that, you know, you can't replace a dog room, you can't replace a nail salon, those, those, those retail base will be okay. And I think that's where we're seeing more appetite from our investors rather than the, the big store, um, big box retail. Well, if they, or if they turn them in, as you said, experience centers, if there's a karting track or a water park, or I don't know, I, I can't think of great experiences, but um, 
Uh, what about one of those places where it's like you jump out of a plane, but you're still just hovering there over a fan? What do you call that? Yeah, listen, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe Jeff Bezos will use some of these malls as a launching center for his rocket ship. You never know. Yeah, well, apparently it was a clean engine rocket, a rocket engine. So, um, yeah, we clarified that with detail. It would be okay. Uh, uh, hey, it's been great talking to you, Noah. It's always fascinating to talk about real estate and finding ways to invest in it, I think, is... Um, is really interesting without having to do all the legwork yourself. And I think it's something that we talked about, you know, the young people are getting in the accumulation phase right now in terms of stocks and, and maybe they want to get involved in real estate as well. So they can do that with Gelt Financial. Noah Miller is the vice president there. All right, we're going to talk carbs. Let's do it. It's not just carburetors, because I know this because I talked to Tom Tomlinson yesterday. He's the president and CEO of Holly, which is an iconic, I mean, a truly iconic auto parts maker. If you've ever tuned up, souped up um, an old motor, you probably used parts from Holly, and now they're trading on the New York Stock Exchange. They combined with a SPAC yesterday, and I think the ticker is HLLY. Tom, uh, talk to me about new products, because I'm always on about the Holly Carbs. I think they're probably the most famous, either Holly or Edelbrock, probably the most famous carbs in the world. But you're making much newer components for tuning. Absolutely. So Holly EFI, electronic fuel injection, is a product um, you know that we introduced actually about a dozen years ago. Uh, it's done very well, been very popular uh, we've got products within the Holly EFI line that actually allow you to convert a carbureted car very easily and cost-effectively to uh, electronic fuel injection. So while we still sell carburetors, um, you know, we're happy to upgrade people to EFI. But uh, we're, we're building out a product uh, strategy and portfolio that provides for, um, e- you know, a wide range of products, exhaust products, uh, ignition products, intake manifolds. Um, you know, we branched out, just got our, uh, dipped our toe in the waters of suspension products. So, um, you know, we, we, there's a lot of room here for us to grow by uh, adding categories. So before we get into the new products, and I do want to, because obviously we're kind of standing in front of a, a revolution here. What's the difference, would you say, between you and your main competitor? I mean, people say Holly Carbs have lower gas mileage, smoother acceleration than Edelbrock carbs, but each has its own kind of quirks. Is it the application that matters? Well, I mean, from from our perspective, one of the things that's unique about the Holly carburetors if, um, is really the modular design, which gives, you know, the racer and the performance enthusiast a lot of flexibility in how to tune that carburetor. And then when you think about it from a modern standpoint, we have a uh, uh, you know, a good sized part of our business all around electronic tuning. So, um, you know, this would be your late model car. Um, you know, you maybe you add some exhaust, cold air intake, whatever the case may be. You know, none of that stuff really helps uh, performance until you, uh, you, you know, tune the motor uh, for the additional air and fuel that you can put through. Right. Um, so, again, um, so more know, in depth, you can you can you can uh, go a little bit more in depth and do a little bit more customizing. Well, you know, I'm probably about to buy my last big displacement V8. I doubt after <laughs> the next car, I'm going to get anything over six liters in a V8. So, and I might have to buy an electric car if my wife has her way. What do you do when people switch to to battery power? 
Well, we are charged up about the emerging opportunity on the electric side. Uh, I've been daily driving a Tesla Model 3 now for a couple years. Um, I just actually, I, I reserved a Tesla Model S Plaid uh, last year and uh, just got the email from Tesla yesterday that it'll be delivered this month. Uh, we're actively developing products around electric. And then uh, one of the things that consumers are very interested in is electric powertrain conversions on, you know, whether it be a classic or even some of these, uh, you know, modern ICE uh, uh, cars. So, oh, yeah, like um, you know, we're we're all about the enthusiast and focused focused on providing them products that will allow them to continue to pursue modification no matter which way they go. Hey, Tom, just real quickly, 30 seconds. I'd love to get your thoughts on going public via SPAC. So uh, from our perspective, it was a natural time for us to, to be out in the market looking for capital. Historically, we've done that through private equity sponsors. Uh, we got familiar with the SPAC uh, vehicle. You know, it looked like a very efficient way for us to go public. And also, our partner on the SPAC side um, has a lot of expertise. And, you know, we, we think that can help ease our transition into life as a public company. So specifically, you know, knowledge of operating public companies. Uh, they also have a lot of expertise on the digital side, which is important for our consumer engagement. So, I mean, it's been a great approach for us. And, um, you know, we're now, uh, you know, arguably no longer a SPAC, although maybe that's uh, how we got public. Um, we're, we, you know, we're just back to Holly, you know, a company with a very long, rich history, iconic brands, uh, growth and, you know, great margins uh, and free cash flow. So mm. um, I guess that's how I'd sum it up. Tim, great. Uh, Tom, great talking to you. Um, obviously, I care a lot. Tom Tomlinson there, CEO of Holly, and they're now traded under the ticker HLLY. Let's get over to Mo Hagben right now. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Invesco Investment Solutions. We're going to get back to the markets. Um, as we saw, Mo, yesterday, a big sell-off. Actually, since Thursday, I guess, we saw more than 3% lopped off the S&P 500. And today, we're seeing a little bit of a bounce back. Is it just all about buy the dip? Or is there some you know, other reason? Are we, ex are we today excited about corporate earnings, whereas yesterday, we were just so bummed about the Delta variant? Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. Well, I think, you know, if we start with just a macro backdrop, um, what we look at is leading economic indicators and risk sentiment in the market. And it's hard to argue that the macro backdrop is still not very supportive of equities and other risk assets. But to your point, we are seeing a little bit of a change in sentiment. And I think that's related to some decelerating in growth expectations. Uh, of course, there's also the fear of the Delta variant, which has some people worried about, you know, 2020 style lockdowns. Um, so that's really, I think, what's driving some of the market action. In our view, some of this is probably related also to rates, right? So the bond markets are a good place to start when you're thinking about the equity market. Generally, bond markets lead equities. And what we've been seeing is the yield curve flattening and, and long rates really coming down significantly, which, again, kind of puts pressure on the cyclical stocks and some of the reflation trade that we'd seen outperform for many, many months. So, Mo, you know, it's interesting here. We have the volatility that Matt was just speaking about over the last couple of days, but there's also been that discussion point of – you know, do I stick with the big growth names, the Amazons, the Apples, and the Netflix also reporting after the close tonight that have been so good to me really since the financial crisis? Or uh, do I make that rotation play on a reopening economy? Think about banks and 
cyclical areas such as energy. Where are you guys in investment? How do you think about that outlook? Sure. So post the presidential election and for most of the year, we have been very much positioned uh, towards kind of the more cyclical parts of the market. So we've maintained a higher risk part, uh, posture to the benchmark, have been overweight equities and risky credit. But then within the equity market, to your point, uh, focused on things like financials, uh, energy, small caps, uh, economically sensitive sectors and companies. Uh, what we've seen with rates, I think, is really renewing this conversation and debate around growth versus value, and we have seen defensives outperform. I think, you know, today is an interesting day where we see kind of a little bit of a bounce back on on kind of the cyclical names, while we're also seeing declining rates, which is interesting. That's generally not mm. the uh, normal way, um, uh, you know, markets behave when rates are, you know, uh, rallying, but then obviously low volatility and quality is not outperforming. What would you say um, people should go for right now in terms of hedges? I noticed yesterday puts um, outweighed calls by two and a half times. And that's the, the biggest ratio that we've seen in, I think, at least 12 months. So everybody's hedging um, or maybe they're just making a bet that we hit the top and we're going down. Yeah, look, so I don't think there's um – at least we're not overly concerned with some of the volatility recently, and and really the macro backdrop is still very supportive of equities. So when we think about asset allocation, uh, we're really thinking about the mix between equities and bonds and uh, alternatives. And you know we still maintain a slight overweight to equities and a slight over, overweight to riskier credit. Um, really thinking through some of the risks to the market. When I think about what we're seeing from a headline perspective, obviously the um, economic growth picture and some concerns about growth maybe slowing down, uh, but you know that's expected, right? Growth, growth should slow down. We've we've been growing at you know nominal eight uh, percent, and the normal kind of growth rate that we'd expect uh, post a recovery is probably something that we were experiencing for you know ten plus years after the global financial crisis. So three four percent growth. Mo, how are you guys thinking about emerging markets? A lot of folks say, you know, gosh, with these yields so low, I got to really go out on the risk profile here and search for yield, and that may take me to emerging markets. How do you guys think about that? From a valuation standpoint, uh, emerging market equities uh, look more favorable than domestic equities or international developed equities. Uh, but again, that's really, um, you know, risk tolerance driven. Uh, so from a global allocation standpoint, right now we do maintain a slight overweight uh, to international, uh, specifically emerging markets, again, because we've positioned really towards more uh, risk on uh, post the presidential election and through most of the year. Now, that said, um, from a risk management standpoint, is some of the um, uh, run up in those themes and those sectors uh, allow us to kind of reduce those overweight. So we've actually been reducing some of that overweight uh, to international equities, as well as uh, some of the developed world outside the U.S. It, are, aren't we going to see a lag in terms of their reopening? I mean, you know, the U.S. seems like we're past the pandemic. And I know I'm sitting here in New York where everyone's vaccinated, and it's probably not the same in Springfield, Missouri. But um, in terms of Europe and the UK, even though they've celebrated Freedom Day, they still are pretty locked down. And so aren't we going to see a big reopening bounce there later on? Possibly. And, you know, there's 
some risk to that. Uh, you know, the, the variant and some of the flare-ups we've seen globally um, have the market a little bit concerned about 2020-style lockdowns. I don't think that's very likely. Um, we should see um, some of this reopening move more to the developed world and also the emerging markets, which are a little bit further behind in terms of vaccinations. Um, so that's still very positive for uh, the themes that have worked for most of the year, uh, with the exception of the last few months. All right. So, uh, Mo, is the risk in your outlook here simply that Fed Chairman Jay Powell may make a mistake as it relates to tapering and eventually moving rates? So I would say there's three things, right? That is absolutely one of them, right? So, um, you know, equity markets, bull markets don't really die based on age. They die because of a policy mistake. I also think that the variant, you know, I think we've um, thought about the probability of a significant lockdown to be low, but that is still a risk. So I would say that's the number two risk. And then lastly, if growth does decelerate and then, you know, really takes a turn for the worse, uh, you know, if earnings start to disappoint, if we start to see some of the leading indicators start to come down and below expectations, I would say that's also a risk to the market. Mo, great talking to you. Great to get your insight. Thanks very much for bringing us back to the markets. Let's bring in Laura Forsick right now, space analyst and owner of Astrolytical. She's also the author of Rise of the Space Age Millennials. And Laura, I mean, Talk to us about what we're seeing here. Clearly, Jeff Bezos is is not a millennial, nor is Elon Musk or Richard Branson by any means. But these guys are driving a totally new era in space exploration. That's right. What they're doing is inspiring millennials and Generation Z, which I believe Oliver Damon, one of the astronauts today on Blue Origin, is a member of. And so if you go back in history and you think of the Apollo lunar landings back in the 1960s, 70s, that inspired whole generations. But for millennials and Generation Z, the, the you know, people there, you know, young kids all the way through about age 40, I'm talking about, they're mostly inspired by this generation of entrepreneurs and new space, quote unquote, companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, and Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic, and all the great things that we're doing right now with commercial spaceflight. Yeah, Laura, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, you know, when I grew up in the uh, the era of NASA and, uh, you know, the Apollo missions, it was primarily about science. Talk to us now about what some commercial applications or commercial uses of space and space travel, what do you think the future is for some of these folks that are, in fact, on, on a private scale commercializing space? Yeah, well, a lot of it still is science. There's some really great suborbital science that can and so research and development, both for just science and also for commercial companies. And NASA also wants to train astronauts on these suborbital craft as well. So there's a lot of reasons. But of course, what we heard today, those screams of joy and celebration as they were in space, it's just an inspiration. It's a way to get people to look at planet Earth differently and to look at the way that we interact with our universe differently, floating around in microgravity, seeing the curvature of the Earth and the thin atmosphere and the lack of borders other than geographic borders. I mean, that's a way to really change the perspective of how we view our planet. So I noticed the tourists are only going up to the Carmen line, maybe a little over, maybe a little under. Um, uh, is it just the cost 
that limits them? Because if I went up there, I'd want to go in orbit. I'd want to do a spacewalk. I'd probably want to land on the dark side of the moon and play some Pink Floyd. <laughs> is it is it a massive cost difference between you know sixty five miles up and one loop around? Yes can go to orbit right now. You can go with SpaceX. They are flying people to the International Space Station, around $55 million. They're also sending people in a free bit around the Earth for a few days with a Dragon capsule, and that undisclosed price, but probably in the same range. Ah. Compared to, um, you know, Blue Origin hasn't announced their pricing yet, but we can guess it's probably about a million dollars, somewhere around there. Virgin Galactic is about to raise their prices up from a quarter of a million to we don't know what yet. So it is a significant cost difference. I'm with you. I'd love to go up there in orbit, too, do, do some loop. That would be fantastic. Yeah, it's only 2,000 Bitcoin then, basically. If you want to ride <laughs> to the ISS, bring it all together. couple loops around in orbit, uh, SpaceX can do it. Why does SpaceX seem to be so far ahead of the rest, Laura? Are they just, you know, did, did Elon Musk just go all in and um, everybody else kind of held back a little to watch his lead? Well, it's very difficult. And Elon Musk had some real challenges in the beginning, but um, his goal is to send humans to Mars. And so everything that SpaceX does is to get that goal of sending humans to Mars. And a lot of the work that they did early on has been for NASA, sending cargo to the International Space Station, which helped them develop their uh, Falcon 9 rocket Crew Dragon, um, which Crew Dragon now carries astronauts to the International Space Station as well. And that has been their real push, is getting these government contracts Whereas Virgin Galactic, for example, doesn't really care so much about um, government contracts. They have a few, again, to orbital science, but their focus has also been on the space tourism. And Blue Origin has a mix. They want to do space tourism. They also want to go beyond. They want to take their New Glenn rocket in development right now to orbit, and they want to build uh, space stations, as you heard Jeff Bezos say, getting people um, off Earth and getting Earth and really doing this whole cities and space concept. So, Laura, what's the role uh, of NASA right now. We've seen three successful uh, privatized commercial applications here with Mr. Sir Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and now uh, Jeff Bezos. What is the role of NASA right now? NASA is a great innovator for pushing those boundaries. So NASA right now is focused on getting humans to the moon. And they are actually contracting with SpaceX and hopefully in the future Blue Origin to send people to the lunar surface as early as 2024. And so that's really exciting to have a new space station built in lunar orbit. So um, not just the International Space Station anymore, it's going to also be the gateway in lunar orbit around the moon and then sending people to the surface and then hopefully a lunar base in the future. So really pushing those boundaries. And also bringing commercial companies along with, so contracting to commercial companies, large ones like I just mentioned, but also mm. smaller ones as well, that can really help bring the technology and the, the, human, uh, the, the U.S. industry forward. How far is it into the future when there's a lunar base where we live? You know, I loved in Interstellar, um, you know, at, at the end when they show, and I don't want to spoil it, but if, if you haven't seen Interstellar, then you have really bad taste in movies because it rules. Um, they show that, you know, the space station that they live in that has the kind of mirrored, uh, really weird anti-gravity baseball field and stuff. How long until people live in space? 
have been living in space for 20 years on the International Space Station. Yeah, but so not you and me, Laura. People on moon? <laughs> no, not you and me, but maybe someday it'll be people like us who can afford it. And there's going to be commercial space stations coming on board after the International Space Station, which is planned to be retired somewhere in the 2030s. So there's going to be commercial space stations that could maybe bring people like you and me eventually up into orbit. And then lunar base is coming up as well. Um, the Artemis program is going to first start with government astronauts, both U.S. and international partners. And then it'll be built up over the coming decades. Well, and soon we go back to the moon, right? When do we go? I don't know why we stopped going there at the end of For All Mankind, but hopefully soon we go go back. That's the plan as early as 24 is the goal. And so that is the plan for the very first lunar landing mission. But there's going to be some before it's going to go around the moon. So soon. All right, we're waiting to have a press conference from Jeff Bezos coming up in just moments, and we'll bring that to you. Uh, we're speaking with Laura Forsyth, space analyst uh, and owner of Astrolytical. Laura, we've got three billionaires so far in the game. Uh, is there expectations that there will be more private, either billionaires or enterprises, or what's the future there? Or even bigger government investment, yeah. right? Because why don't some big governments get into this? Well, there are governments around the country, something called the Artemis Accords, which is now 12 governments around the world that have signed to do this partnership with the Artemis program with NASA to go to the moon and also establish some rules as we go to make sure that we're all cooperating. And then on the other side of the planet, we've got China and Russia partnering to also go to the moon. And they're going to bring international partners as well. Probably not the United States, but you know, we don't know how that's going to play out in the future. And then there's also lots of investment in um, just some of the stuff that's really practical on the ground. How do you take this technology that we're developing here and make it really useful for helping out the planet? So, for example, if you want to go to um, the International Space Station, live on the International Space Station, you need a life support system. Well, how do you use that life support system to you know, clean the air, clean the water on the space station? It can also be used for the benefit of Earth. So a lot of that investment goes right back to Earth, and it's not a waste in any way. Um, and then when you think about the future, like I said, there are commercial space stations coming on board. They're not all going to be you know, privately funded. It's going to be a combination of government financing and public-private partnerships. And there's also going to be some really great stuff happening um, in terms of cislunar space. That's the space between the Earth and the Moon and that lunar surface. So a lot of private investment there, possibly in lunar mine. So mm. taking the dirt and dust that's on the Moon and really transforming it into something that's useful. All right, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating stuff. Laura Forsick there is a space analyst. She owns Astrolytical, and she also wrote a book entitled Rise of the Space Age Millennials. Actually, now that I think about it, we, we saw someone from Gen Z go up, and yep. the Bezos bros are kind of like Generation Golf, like my generation, your generation, right? Uh, I don't know. I'm the la tail end of the baby boomers. Really? Yeah. You're so young for a baby boomer. <laughs> and then Wally, of course. Yes. She's like the greatest generation. Sure. I guess that's what we call them. I can't really remember. Anyway, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.